Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future before you do anything else make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future please also leave a positive review on itunes thanks so much let's be david welcome how are you thank you uh, pretty good actually just getting over a bit of jet lag after a long trip to the us last week yeah we were talking about that jet lag is uh is not pretty is it i uh, no, no, i think that my the ability to handle it it gets less as you get older as well i think uh, i'm pretty sure i didn't take me three or four days to recover when i was 20 but anyway there we go there you go all right, David, um, you are an interesting fellow. Um, you've, you've got a chemistry degree. We'll, we'll talk a lot about chemistry. This is, uh, it's, it's a game of chemistry. Sounds good. Uh, from, from Oxford and then a PhD from Cambridge. Um, and, and you were basically a chemicals uh, analyst. You went into the finance field. Um, you know, yes. lo- lo- long career there, Morgan Stanley, Commerzbank, HSBC. Um, but now you work at Ocker Carbon Capture. Um, so my question is, you know, from, from chemistry to banking and back to chemistry. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I almost feel like I've done the loop. <laughs> no, yeah. I, um, I had, um, I had a good bunch of friends when I was doing my, uh, I, I, mean, I, I must admit some of the young people we meet at an ARCA these days uh, in our, in our team, um, I'm really impressed because when I was their age uh, or younger, I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the the, the degree uh, when I was in my in my early twenties and didn't really know what I wanted to do and I was quite interested to get involved in doing a bit of research because my my fourth year at Oxford was all research so you get a bit of a taste of what it's like to sit in a research group and try and work things out in the chemistry lab I thought oh this is nice I can do this for a few more years and if I'd been if I'd been less impatient I could have actually stayed in the same place and done it um, but uh, I I asked around and I ended up. Um, finding a, a space and some funding in, in Cambridge. So I went to join a, a different group there. 
Um, but after that, I really, you know, four, three, four years later, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a career. I knew, I knew it wasn't academia, um, but I guess I just followed some of my friends, actually. Some of my friends jumped over to the financial world, and I, you know, I had some chats, had some interviews as these things work, and, you know, and ended, up, ended up in the system. Yeah, but uh, the thing is, as, as we're going to see, it comes in handy, doesn't it? Because there's something about this space, when obviously it's a complicated space, but, you know, it's not a research space where, you know, all the researchers sit in a corner. You right. are faced with explaining this because it's, it's a, a revolutionary concept in many ways. And so you told me it, it's actually served you pretty well to, to, to have this analyst background where you're forced to both understand mm. technical things, but, but more importantly, write and talk about them in kind of lucid ways that matter yeah. to, to, to people and financial markets. Yes, I think that's entirely true. I mean, I, I must admit, I think the, I, I'm quite a good believer in you know the, the way that you behave as a, or the way you develop in your sort of, let's say between the ages of 10 and 25 are, are super important in maybe even between 10 and 20, uh, setting up what sort of person you are and what careers you might follow and all that sort of stuff. And I, I was, um, I was lucky enough to um, have some success with the language side as well as the, the science and math side. And I know what my, uh, long, and this is ages ago, black and white era comment, <laughs> but ages ago, my English teacher said that when I, when I chose sort of a, a more scientific and mathematical list of, list of areas to look at for my A-levels, which is sort of in the UK, what you do when you're sort of 16 to 18, um, that uh, he said, well, at least you'll be a literate scientist. Uh, and I think being, a, being able to write about technical stuff, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was absolutely not my planning back when I was 16 to think, oh, I need to, I need to be good at both of these to uh, be, a, be an analyst in my late 20s. <laughs> that was not the case. I had no idea. But that was what I ended up doing. And yeah, absolutely. You have to uh, be able to uh, you know, explain long words and explain when they're relevant and when they're not and everything. Right. So let's jump into it and, and I'll try first and then p please correct me. So we're, we're talking about carbon capture and removal and storage. So this is usually abbreviated these days as CCUS because the utilization part uh, is now obviously key. And so this is uh, from what I understand, right? It's a suite of technologies that play a role in this new global climate game involving capturing large amounts of CO2 from point sources in, in, in this case, but there's two concepts that I, I want you to just briefly explain. So there's industrial use case, and then you have the direct air capture use mm -hmm. case. Yep. Um, just, just give a little bit of an uh, overview of these uh, two things, just in a very simple way so that it's very clear w where things are, are, are coming from. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good place to start. I mean, um, you've already hit on a couple of acronyms and like, like any area that has a scientific angle behind it, um, carbon capture is full of acronyms. And, um, I think it's just, it's the way that engineers work. It's the way that scientists work. They, they love acronyms. Um, so CCS is a very common one. So that's carbon capture and storage. CCU is carbon capture utilization. So where you would use the CO2 to convert it into something else once you, once you've caught it in inverted commas so that you can, you can perhaps make a chemical or a fuel or a building material out of it. That's a bit of an earlier, earlier stage industry at the moment. There's not a lot of technology that economically works in that space yet, but it's, it's very exciting. Um, then you have CCUS, which is the broad term, which you just mentioned. Um, and then you have a new one, which is a CCTS, which is someone deliberately complicating it, which I read in a paper re recently, which is actually the same as CCS. It's carbon capture, transport and storage. So they're breaking out the transport element 
Um, and that in, that in itself is quite important. Maybe we'll cover this a little bit later on, but you know, obvious comments. Once you've caught it, how, you're probably not near where you're storing it. So how do you get it from A to B is a very, very important part. That's fantastic. Yes, I do want to talk about the transport, but then just very briefly, direct air capture sometimes is a bit confused with this because I do want to go into very, very specific industrial use cases in a second, but just briefly, direct air capture, which is not uh, what Auker is doing at the moment anyway, but what what does that mean and why is it sort of separate? As you've already said, we're we're very much on the industrial, what's called point source capture. So we would go to an industrial plant, build a piece of kit, and that would capture the CO2 from that plant, the cement plant or whatever. So we, so when, when you look at what's called industrial emissions, this, this could be from a cement facility, you could be making steel, you could be generating power, uh, let's say a gas to power or waste to energy, it's those types of uh, industries. And the, the, the big difference really is the amount of CO2 um, that you, uh, you try to capture through your process. So when you look at the industrial types of emissions that we look at, um, it's between very roughly 5 and 25%. So of the exhaust gas that you, we work on, anywhere between 5% and the low end is, is typically power generation, up to 25%, which is more like some cement and some uh, blue hydrogen. Um, so, but, in, but that's the sort of range we look at. Direct air capture is, as you would, would guess from the name, uh, purely taking the CO2 out of the air. And the uh, the and the CO two in air is a very very dilute level. It's four hundred parts per million, which is an order of magnitude less concentrated than it is uh, in the industrial uh, areas that we look at. I mean, in the overall in the overall scheme of things, and um, we're all aiming towards the same goal. So you look at your classic IEA, the International Energy Agency type uh, projections to how does the world get to net zero? You know, all these big chunks of renewable power and wind and solar. You have energy efficiency. And you have, of course, carbon removal and the removal piece. So taking CO2 out of what you already do and out of the atmosphere, those, those you have, I think it's, it's, this is a very rough number, but it's something like 40 billion uh, tons of CO2 um, that we could play around with. And about ultimately 30 billion could be in the uh, industrial capture part and 10 million could be in the uh, what's called direct air capture. So direct air capture is purely negative removal. It's taking CO2 out of the air to lower the concentration, whereas we work on something that already produces CO2 from an industrial process. So we're sort of, we're, we're very much in the same family, but we have very different uh, technical challenges because that's a very different process. <laughs> Uh, very good. So let's just super briefly before we go into these industries, which really are are important. Um, the current market is not massive, um, right? Uh, mm, the, the numbers are a little different. I don't know what your numbers are now, but you know, it used to be online. You would say you, people would say, "Oh, there's like you know, fifteen, twenty uh, existing facilities." I think now the number is more like the last I saw was thirty-five. I'm sure this number is growing rapidly and in and around the COP meetings, I'm sure that they, you know, inflated even, even further, but that's not a lot compared to, I guess, the, the world's factories. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, even with McKenzie, when they uh, have been thinking about the expected market growth, uh, both in terms of, you know, how many facilities are doing this and in terms of the tonnage capacity, none of them, as you pointed out, are reaching the 1.5 degree 
goal, which by the way, could you also just explain that? Because to people who are very much insiders, this like 1.5 degree goal above pre-industrial levels, that's also really specialty terminology. Hmm. Yes, it is. It's uh, and, and honestly, I think it's, um, it's very good you mentioned that because I think it does cause some confusion. And as we know from many political topics uh, in the UK in the last in the last few years, when you talk a lot of numbers to, to everyone, uh, it can generate confusion because people start to distrust the numbers themselves and what they really mean. Um, I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, but a climate scientist would say something like, you know, there is the, there are very detailed calculations that can link things like the level of CO2 um, to a level of global warming. And you can say, well, if you if we have a certain level of parts per million of CO2, it, this will likely give you a scenario in a few decades' time where you end up with uh, global temperatures two degrees above the industrial average. So taking a long-term view over the over the last few hundred years um, versus where we are now, and I think and where we are now, obviously, as as you probably spotted in a lot of the uh, COP. Uh, COP27 discussions uh, and, and, and PR, um, the danger is that we're getting quite close to that 1.5 um, and it looks to be very hard to avoid going past it. And the reason people talk about these, it's not it's not because they're magic levels. It's not some sort of um, accumulator score or something. It's really, there's just a way of visualizing steps. So when we talk about global warming, you know, we're 1.5 degrees higher than it has been for the last few hundred years. That means one type of outcome, and then two degrees, it's hotter, obviously. And uh, that means another type of outcome, and two and a half, or three, or four degrees, obviously. And and I think the the way these scenarios are, are put out there is just to sort of say, it, and and this is where the explanation would goes a little bit off the uh, straight and narrow. It's not going to be a linear process. So the idea is that the 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 higher the temperature increase versus history. The more that happens, but it's not just it's not just sort of like you know uh, three degrees higher is twice as bad as one point five degrees higher. It's a, a lot of processes happen that are self fulfilling once you go above certain levels and start to trigger other events that that effectively reflect a higher temperature. So you know you change um, you could change you know uh, jet streams or you could change ocean salinity or ocean currents. You could change ocean temperatures. You know and those things then snowball like like. Um, melting the permafrost releases methane potentially that could raise temperatures even more. So there are lots of sort of self-fueling mechanisms. And that's why people talk about these, these scenarios, 1.5, 2, 3, and 4, and so on, just to sort of give you an indication as to how, as to the level of severity. All right. So um, let's talk about the scaling challenges in a second, but but right now let's go into the industries because, you know, you at Arker Carbon Capture have been doing this for a, for a while. This is not something yes. you just got into. So uh, I, I want you to, if you can, just go through a couple of examples. You mentioned steel, you mentioned cement. Those are obviously really hardcore industrial segments. These are materials that the whole global economy depends on. We build cities and factories and, and infrastructure out of these materials. And then, and then you know, gas to power, uh, you know, again, mm. you know, we, we are using uh, those technologies uh, very much to, to, for, for energy. What exactly is being done and in which, I mean, you want to start with cement or steel? What, give us some example of, of, of how you're approaching mm, sure. uh, your capture Absolutely. in these markets. Yeah, so, yeah, right. So we have been, we've been doing this for r- roughly 20 years. Um, we're lucky to have the Norwegian heritage because uh, Norway in the early 2000s uh, under the um, uh, Prime Minister um, Jens Stoltenberg back then 
uh, had a big, big push towards a number of clean technologies, including carbon capture, as part of what's called a, a moon landing strategy. And this was to develop and scale a number of technologies to the point where they could become industrialized and they then could be exported to the world and, and, and do the right thing. Um, a long story short, we did a lot of work around certain industries that were very relevant for Scandinavia and also for Europe. So actually not so much steel, but we've done a lot of work around um, cement and uh, gas-fired power, waste to energy, uh, blue hydrogen. Actually done some work on coal in the UK and the US as well, but that's maybe less of a of a focus for us right now. Um, but we looked at a lot of the, you know, we haven't done so much on steel, but we looked at things, as I mentioned, like cement and, and power generation. Um, now in that, um, we've done a lot of work of validating our technology. Uh, it sounds like a very posh phrase, but what it means is we have a test unit that has gone to someone's site. And, it, and the, the test unit is a full-scale plant in miniature. It captures around 1,200 tons of CO2 per year. Now that size isn't important, but the important thing is it's a proper full-scale plant is just a small version of it. So it behaves like a real plant. It's not not a cheap, not a cheap Meccano set. Um, far from it, in fact. And this and our MTU, a mobile test unit, has been uh, North America, UK, uh, and, and and Europe and done a lot of work around uh, certain um, industries. And that's enabled us to really validate our technology and to show that it works. And it's important to sh- and it's not it's not just simply proving it from our benefit. It's because a lot of the time there are details in how plants emit, how, how industrial facilities emit uh, CO2 and other stuff that can really affect your ability to do the carbon capture. So just purely capturing the CO2, you can do it in a lab and say, yes, yes, the technology works at 5% CO2 or it works at 15% CO2. But on the, on the actual in real life on the plant, you know, the question of, well, what else is in that stream? Is it just nitrogen and CO2, a bit of moisture? Is there also some oxygen still? Is there also some sulfur and nitrogen oxides? Are there particulates? You know, especially if you, given what we do is called post-combustion carbon capture. So surprise, surprise, when you burn things, especially when you burn waste or, or any metal items, you get all sorts of funny reactions happening and you get lots of other rubbish in there, which you have to know about. Otherwise, it clogs up and will, will, uh, will uh, stop your process working. So a lot of the time, our tests are a nightmare for the first few months. So then you work out how it works and then you can really show that First, you understand what comes out. Maybe the emitter has to do some changes and to maybe have a bit more cleaning up of their emissions or has to change the way their, their facility works very slightly. But you can show it does work, but but with that specific knowledge of how that particular plant works. I, I want to go to the technical solutions in a second, but you mentioned blue hydrogen. Mm. So blue hydrogen and green hydrogen is, is also part of this debate. Uh, can you just be very specific about what you mean by blue hydrogen? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of colors in the energy transition, and it can be confusing sometimes. Um, the most important ones are green, which means it is purely non-carbon-based. Uh, uh, so in other words, it's, it has no emissions profile. So green hydrogen would be electrolyzing water to break it to break it up into hydrogen and, and, and oxygen. Um, blue hydrogen is, or blue anything, is where you capture the CO2 from the process. So, so the ultimate effect, if you like, the net effect is whatever you produce has a very minimal, it won't be zero, but maybe it has 5% of the CO2 footprint of the, of the, of the old process. So, and that's your, to be clear, that's the business model of your company is yes, to yeah, serve absolutely. people with blue hydrogen. Um, well, as one industry, yes. So effectively, you know, what we produce, you could say, well, in that case, 
everything that everything that's produced that has our carbon capture on it is a blue version. So blue cement, blue hydrogen, blue power. That's what I was trying to like. refer to. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so effectively, what you're saying is it's um, in the journey to get to a future, whichever decade that might be. I'm going to get drawn on that one, but whichever decade it might be, when everything is fully green or at least largely green, to get between now and then, there are a lot of industries. Uh, where there is no real alternative apart from capturing the CO2 from what already exists. So we can't turn off all the cement and hydrogen and, and, and steel and other industries before we get to 2050, for instance. But, the, but there is a route to do it. So there is a route to effectively have an all close to a net zero uh, operations from these plants by capturing the CO2 with, with our technology. Hmm. Let, let's talk a little bit about how it actually works. So, sure. so what you're talking about is Usually you would come in and, and you, you, the business model you have uh, carved out here is carbon capture as a, as a service. So you come into pre-existing factories. That's, that's one they model have, actually. We have, a, we have a number of models in that, but that's one. Certainly. All right, but let's talk about this one. So there's yeah. basically an existing factory. They are emitters and they want to fix that. Um, so they bring you in and then you add a unit on top of their stovepipe that you know, acts on this. What are the particular technical solutions that exist? Because you mentioned this has been R&D for, you know, for years. Mm, um, yes. So this is chemistry-based process engineering mm -hmm. research. Yeah. Um, and, and the particular approach you use is, uh, is it solvents S21 and S26? Am I right about this? Yeah, exactly. You might guess how we name these. Uh, we have a very, very complex naming system. <laughs> yeah, it's um, numbers. <laughs> we have a whole lot. So numbers um, and colors. I like yeah. it. So we, um, exactly, numbers and colors. What could, what could be easier? Um, so, in, so very simply, um, we, as you, I think you phrased it very, very nicely, we're a technology and engineering company that designs, builds, and delivers the complete carbon capture unit. And at the heart of that um, is the technology that we spent a lot of time on 15, 12, 15 years ago, developing, along with various partners in industry from the chemical side, uh, developing the actual chemicals, how they're mixed, what combinations. So the actual solvents, you know, this, uh, as, a, as you mentioned, S26, it's a cocktail, as is S21. That they're, it's, it's proper sort of mixology. It's a number of chemicals together that we blend in a certain proportion, and that, that creates your... Uh, whatever better phrase, your Negroni, which will then do a very, very effective job um, capturing the CO2. So effectively, but our, our overall, the overall model we have, I mean, at the heart of it is this, and I, I, I don't like using the phrase secret sauce, that always sounds like it's some sort of a, you know, barbecue trick that has been passed down over generations. This is a very careful um, R&D process around a mixture, a, a very specific mixture uh, that performs in a certain way. It might be that it is very energy efficient, it might be that it's very robust. It might be that it's biodegradable. But there are certain attributes around the actual technology, the actual chemistry, the actual stuff that you can put in the barrel um, that we spend a lot of time developing. And we have a lot of patents around. So the, the IP protection is, is quite heavy around, around that side of it. But that's, that's only one, one, one part of it. So one part of our offering is the actual chemistry. And the other part is the engineering. And the engineering part is super important because that is a bit... When you you when taking and if you ask any of the guys who've been around throughout early years, going from a lab to a pilot or a test rig or a test plant, going from a test plant to a much bigger test plant, the first one is much more difficult. So going from, as I say, from white coats to blue coats uh, is really difficult, and they're all all these problems you come up against, and it's a it's a classic you know maturing technology style uh, hazard route. <laughs> it's really quite a headache 
headache inducing. Um, but we got there a long time ago. Um, so we've had this, this suite of, um, technology, uh, S26, S21, et cetera, around an S10, around which we based our engineering models. So effectively what we have now, we can build, um, uh, a one pl- a plant as big as you like. Um, we're doing, we're designing two of those in the UK along with a consortium right now, or we can deliver a modular one, which we're doing in the Netherlands. And we're also building one in Norway as well, which I'm sure we'll get onto that later. But, um, but effectively we have a modular unit, which is a sort of a one size fits all type, um, piece of kit that sits in your car park next to your, next to your facility. And the way you describe it is very good. Effectively we bolt on to, if it's a retrofit, we bolt on to an existing plant. So it sits in the car park is a way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so you pointed out that there is a chemistry component and then there's an engineering or perhaps, you know, scaling component, you might call it because, you you know, it's real life and it has to work at a certain scale. There's a bit of discussion, you know, about this because in the media, there's now, you know, this talk about second generation approaches. Um, always when, when an advanced technology is out there, you, you know, people are chasing you. Um, is it the case that there are very new uh, approaches that could be conceivably, you know, cheaper or 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 better, or or is this by now, at least in in your book, a very established technology? And the main challenge for you is scaling. Mm, that's a very very good question. I think um, so. The the the, eight, the the chemical route we use uh, uses chemicals called amines, and these are organic chemicals with not in, containing nitrogen, and they react very efficiently with CO two. And that is as a as a way of reacting with CO two and therefore capturing it has been well known for oh, 30, 40 years at least, maybe even more. Um, uh, the you asked a question a while ago about um, the scale of the industry. It's pretty small at the moment, you know, 40, 50 million tons a year, mostly in the US. And that's mostly for, for, uh, enhanced oil recovery and that, that market. So capturing the CO2 that comes out when you try and produce oil and gas and using that to produce more oil and gas by putting it back in the well. Um, that is really where the, this industry has, has, has grown from. And from those, from that point, a lot of those have been using very, uh, simple aiming ways of, uh, aiming based, uh, technology solutions to capture CO2. Now, the problem is that they, they, um, they generally don't last very long. They have lots of side reactions. You have to replace the solvent a lot. They use a lot of energy. So a lot of the focus, if you like, to make the, uh, you mentioned second generation. We probably think we and the other leading players right now probably are second generation, actually. And the third generation is the question. <laughs> but the second generation that, that we have is, um, um, and along with our major competitors, the likes of sort of uh, Shell and Mitsubishi, um, we have effectively a, a very refined version of what's a very well understood chemical route. Um, and the, the refined angle is that it's, it lasts a long time. It's biodegradable. It's not very corrosive. So you can use cheaper steel when you build your plant. Um, and, um, and it also has a very good lifespan. It has a very low number of side, side reactions and side products and also low emissions. So effectively it's a very, the environmental envelope is quite attractive. Um, but it's, uh, but it's a very effective route. Now the issue is this is, this is ready now. So if you have a cement plant and you want to put carbon capture onto it, there, there's only really the choice of, for sort of, uh, of an advanced aiming route right now. Um, there are other technologies that are newer than, that are, let's say, much less well developed, which I'll discuss in a sec. But if you want to do it right now, there's only really, only really one choice. Um, the, the, the new technology side really falls into two camps. And 
I'll, uh, I won't include direct air capture because that's, that's go back to your very early question. That's, that's a different angle entirely. And that tends to be more clever materials rather than using amines, for instance. But anyway, um, but the technologies you see now, there are some technologies that are seeing some good support from the innovation funds, like the EU innovation fund, for instance. Um, quite a few of these are, uh, quite simple chemical reactions, but like using potassium carbonate. Um, which is a very simple off-the-shelf basic chemical, literally a basic chemical for the chemists out there. Um, that is uh, that has been looked at um, 10, 12, 15 years ago. Um, it didn't scale and it wasn't used in any larger plants because it doesn't work fast enough. So the attraction of, of what of the of the aiming route is that it's a very fast reaction and you can do it at very large scale. The potassium carbonate route, um, without any other additional help. Is a bit slow, so it's hard. Although it works very nicely in the lab, it's really hard to to scale it. So to scale it and to to make it into into an industrial solution, you have to use some pressure or some additional temperature or some enzyme or a catalyst, and you start to um, erode the potential cost benefit of using a very very cheap initial step. So, but but this is interesting. Maybe there are some clever ways around it. I mean, we we spent you know we've we done some tremendous efforts from engineering for modularizing and lowering cost of our system and our modular plant is 90% cheaper than the one we built back in 2012 in Norway so you can you can achieve enormous benefits or enormous um, cost reduction just by modularizing and letting the engineers loose to do to do to do engineering things um, and I think we're maybe at an early stage with that with the uh, with some of these technologies that have been around for a while the other part is there are some genuinely new technologies that are really exciting um, uh, there are lots of advanced materials. There are some other solvents out there that are non, as I say, non-aqueous, so non non-water containing. Um, there are advanced materials like uh, metal or, or organic frameworks, which are sort of effectively cage-like structures that um, currently are very very expensive to assemble, but have great potential to be once you have them a very very cost-effective way of, uh, of of catching CO2. But these are all rather earlier stage. David, where does the Canadian approach fit in this? Because they're another big uh, producer. So the Svante approach is one of them. Um, do you know in what in what camp you would put those? Um, yes, I know, I know. I would. I'm always feel a little bit nervous talking about someone else's technology because, of course, I'm not from them. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm not asking um, you to assess it. I just in, in kind of in you know where would you put it in in you know in this batch? Yeah, I would say of, they're, of sort of, they're, they're in between. I mean, they're not the same as us in terms of amines. I mean, the, the main amine players either you're off the shelf because you buy a very cheap amine to, uh, as they call it, uh, clean up gas stripping to, to take out CO2 from a gas stream, or you have a more advanced um, amine solution like ourselves or Shell and Mitsubishi, which, which are the ones who are targeting the uh, industrial processes. But, um, but, but I mean, the thing for us, actually, the regions are very important because what drives our industry very heavily is policy support. And there's a lot of varieties around the world. You know, Europe's got carrot and stick. The US has got a big carrot now with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Canada's also a bit more like Europe, you know, has a visible carbon price in their planning, has a lot of government support and so on. And so uh, actually, funny you should mention Canada, but it's a very, very interesting market. Yeah. So um, 
the the uh, examples uh, that you have were you said in a couple of markets and one of them is cement so yes. the brevik cement plant is one of them in norway right uh, brevik famous the brevik uh, bridge all that stuff um and and it seems like currently the uh, the capture facility there can handle half of the emissions from the plant but m- most uh, statistics these days talk about 90% capture and 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 getting higher what is the real real here? How much hmm. is being yes. captured? No, what percentages? Good, great. Yeah, yeah. So good, great, good, good question. So the, um, the, typically our technology um, would achieve 90% plus capture. I mean, the choice of whether it's 90 or 95 tends to come down to how much energy uh, you want to put into the process. If you want to capture 99.8, you, w- you could do it. It's just, it's just expensive because as the process goes, it's a chemical loop that runs all the time. Uh, the, the, you have to use um, Heat, um, so actually steam or heat or electrical power, whichever route you have to your to your uh, to access to, use that to reverse the reaction that regenerates a solvent and that then releases the CO two, which you then put in your tank and do do whatever you want to do with, put it in a pipeline and go and store it somewhere. Um, so the, the so for the operating cost for these plants, energy uh, or heat in some form or other is a, is a big input, probably the most important piece. So mm. the. Um, the plants that we are involved with, with Heidelberg Materials up in Norway, and the, which is the, uh, the Brevik CCS project, um, that was a, there was a, a deliberate design where there's a lot of offset from the heat from that would be otherwise be wasted from that plant. So the reason it's capturing 400,000 tons um, of the 800 rather than 790 or something um, is because there's a, there's, a, or there's a clear offset in terms of capturing a lot of the waste heats from this, what is effectively a retrofit project, capturing the waste heat and bringing the OPEX right down to a, to a quite a low level. Mm. So, so let's jump straight into the barriers because the expense of this, the technological difficulties and, and the efficiencies uh, that are sometimes limited are, are often cited as, as big barriers to, to more widespread adoption. Because one thing is, as you said, you know, it works in the lab, it works in a demo plant and it technically works, but, you know, are you really going to retrofit, uh, I don't know, Shell talks about uh, 10,000 factories, you know, to reach, the, uh, or, or IAEA, I guess, to, to reach the Paris goals, but then Shell had some other analysis where they said by 2050, uh, you know, we would have to see this operational in some um, much larger number of factories. Mm. And anyway, um, and, and if you think about it, there's 10 million factories in the world. I'm sure not all of those are, are you know, have emissions that could be, yes. uh, you know, captured this way. But anyway, so the scaling challenge, just address that for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very good, good one. I mean, I think there is a, quite a lot of, um, it's not fake news. That's the wrong phrase to use. It's maybe the, the backdrop is not a good data set. If you look at how this technology works, and I, and I would include all the main players in this space, not only us, I would say if you look at what's been done in carbon capture so far in the last 10, 15 years, and that is not a good representation of what we could achieve in the future. Um, there have been a couple of plants that, are, that have been expensive. Um, they've had problems building them. They've had problems with the operation, problems injecting into the reservoir. Um, and, but these are all issues that, with some in the, in the rearview mirror, with some hindsight, are very well understood. And are ones also that, at least from the capture part, capture side we've not seen so we and, we and we think we understand why they go wrong as i mentioned you know this on-site testing a little bit earlier being able to show the stuff actually works on the plant itself is very important because you can see what comes out you can see 
what other pollutants could be in your uh, exhaust gas that could make your technology not work. Um, so we think we're in a much, much better position. And we're, we're, you know, we're, we're building the first industrial plants in Europe. You know, we're, we're building you know, this, the one in Norway we, we just mentioned, the Brevik CCS. And we're also building one uh, in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, um, for TWENS, which is a waste of energy facility. We're building all of our modular plants for that. And we're designing two big ones along with the consortium in the UK for gas to power. So it, we're actually... You know, in a year's time, hopefully, our first plant will be up and running um, or very close to it in, in the Netherlands. And then in two years' time, one in Norway. And then three years' time or three and a half years' time, some in the UK. So from that point of view, it's, it's a um, very, very exciting time. But we, we um, I would say we, we don't really see so all, all our 15 years of data of testing our technology on, on real plants. We don't really see uh, the types of challenges that some of the early plants may have had. Um, cost-wise also, and I think we, um, although we maybe said a little bit less about the cost of our very big plants um, for, for deliberate reasons, because they're still in commercial discussions in, in, in most cases, um, the modular one, we talked quite a lot about, you know, the cost over the whole cycle. And if you look at, we call this, a, um, this is a typical sort of power generation style comment, but it's a uh, levelized cost of carbon capture across the cycle. So in other words, the cost of carbon, if you're, if you're an investor in the project, it's the cost of carbon capture that across from capturing to transporting it to running the plant to putting it in the ground and storing it, that cost over the whole cycle that you would compare with, for instance, the EU, the European carbon price. Um, and the carbon price is currently roughly mid-70s euros per tonne. And our cost range starts at that point. And it's, it's quite a broad range. It goes from 75 to 175 euros per tonne. And a lot of that is driven by where the projects are. And if you're in the wrong place, it's quite difficult to see a cheap solution to transport your CO2 to somewhere to store it. Um, but we are already at a point where, you know, with no help from the government, some of the very best projects do work at the current um, European carbon price. And so, Can you I'm just sure briefly, you, for people who don't fully understand what a carbon price is, because in many markets, this doesn't exist, right? I believe yeah, yeah. Uh, carbon pricing right. exists in Cal, you know, California, in, in the EU, and a couple of other places. But w- what, what does it mean to have a carbon price, and why is it important to this particular growth market? Yeah. Um, so very, very simply, the EU has had a carbon price in some form for, for a couple of decades. It's not always been a very... Um, useful political tool but in the last in the last few years as as the eu and many other countries have, have taken a more let's say proactive view and to really do something about uh, co2 emissions it's become i would say a very quite well formed political tool so what it really means is it's a um, it's a price for emissions that is driven by the market so it goes up and down and in the last since the start of 2021 it's gone from you know 30 40 euros a ton up to 100 back to 58, up to 100 again, and now to 75. So yes, it does move around. But effectively, it's a carbon price that the legislation says you have to pay as an emitter. Now, it's not every industry, and the definitions are expanding to include more and more, but it's not quite everyone. But ultimately, it will be the great majority of all the industrial emissions that we would look at as a as a technology supplier. Uh, but effectively, it's a price you pay per emission. So if your cement plant emits a million tons a year of, of CO2, and uh, you have to then look at the allowance you have to buy. You have to go and go into the market and buy allowances for uh, those uh, million tons. Um, if, for instance, you then, which will cost you, you know, whatever the market price is, um, if you didn't buy enough or you emitted more, then you could get some level of uh, penalty cost as well. So it's, it's an incentive to make you reduce your emissions footprint. 
Awesome. Yeah, and just just to stop, I mean, manufacturing cement is not just a random use case, right? It's eight percent of the yes. world's oh, yeah, yeah. greenhouse gas Big emissions. Jump. It's yes. a massive. Absolutely. It's bigger than air traffic. Yeah, yeah, this is a very very big use case. Yes, absolutely, and 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 it's also probably. I would say they're probably the most most often quoted example of what's called a hard to abate industry. You probably hear this that that phrase quite a lot in these sort of net, in the transition discussions or net zero discussions. There's lots of hard to abate industries. You mentioned one, air travel. What else can you do apart from um, flying a glider? <laughs> There's a you know electric planes look to have a very limited range at least for for the next or 10, 15 years. I had the pleasure of listening to a talk in the US the other week from. Um, one of the major U.S. airlines, and you know, they said that eighty percent of their long haul would be have would have to use some type of sustainable fuel. There's no other route to to to, to, de- to decarbonize to flight. And the same with cement. So yes, there are other technologies where you can maybe run it, run your plant, or have a different design of a plant that doesn't create quite as much CO two, but maybe you reduce it by 40 percent or something like that. But you still you still produce a lot. Um, so there's no other way to do it. Uh, so yeah, it's a very, it's a very key area to chase. Uh, but David, how is this going to work in a global situation when, you know, currently, I mean, you represent a company headquartered in Norway. Uh, there are some increased activities in, even in Russia and Australia there, they have this, the UK is starting its journey. As you said, the U S has currently the biggest activity, but with mostly with older technology that they're you know now trying to, yes. to renew. All of this is nice, but China and Southeast Asia is where all of these polluting plants are, or many of them, and they are much uh, you know earlier in the adoption curve. H- how is that all going to work? They're, they don't even um, have policies yeah, that yeah. so stimulate it. Yeah, There's I mean, no pricing me, scheme. Yeah. I mean, one one way to look at our world is to say, well, you know, well, we're we're in the waste disposal business, and the, you have to put a price on that waste to work out how you dispose of it. And so let, let's ignore the CCU piece. So let, let's ignore the turning it into something else just for now. But in terms of capturing it and storing it somewhere forever, which is the which is the CCS story, of course. Um, yes, you need policy. No question, you need some help. You need some so either you need some type of price on the on the waste, on the CO two, on the carbon, which we see in in Europe, and there are a number of other um, embryonic or let's say not quite as mature as Europe, but there are, there are a number of other carbon price mechanisms being talked about. You know, the, the Canadian policy around this has a visible carbon price that escalates up to, I think it's $170 a tonne by 2030. So there are some pretty high numbers out there. Plus, you've also seen policy support picking up in in, in certain parts of in, in the Middle East, in, 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 in Australia, in India, and in China, um, different stages. And also different mechanisms. So, you know, putting it very simply, if you look at the the US and the most recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the famous 45Q, which is this sort of a, a upfront payable version of a tax credit, <laughs> the and this is a very crude way to describe it. But they that's eighty five dollars for per ton of CO two you capture and store, and that's all it is. There's no nothing else in it. There's no other help, but it's just eighty five dollars. If you do it, you can you can look to apply for that for that um, financial help. Um, that's, if you like, the, the simplest carrot out there. Europe is a mixture of carrot and sticks. So there is there's a stick from the carbon price, which you have to pay if you if you don't capture the CO2. But then if you do capture the CO2, there's um, or if you want to try to, there's the, the carrot, which is the incentive from the government, government in terms of financing. So you can get some government help for your capital costs. You can also get some government help in most areas for your operating costs for a few few years as well, not not forever, but maybe for for five, six, seven, maybe ten years. So there's financial help 
available, which is the, if you like, the, the, the carrot to, to, to implementing, you know, the carbon capture equipment. Then you have other things like the overall corporate net zero strategy. Maybe it's a global company or maybe a, a large European one that has its own ambition driven by all sorts of drivers to be net zero by 2050. And that probably involves decarbonizing their sites across, across the world. Um, then you have the EU taxonomy, which is a very complicated, um, Categorization, I guess, is the right is the right phrase of companies per their put lots of issues in. There's lots of metrics, but one one of them is uh, carbon emissions. And if you don't mm. capture, if you do, you're under the EU taxonomy umbrella, and you don't reduce your CO two footprint or have a large footprint, then you can pick up various yellow flags, and that can affect your ability to raise money in the market. It can affect your maybe you can't raise green bonds, maybe you uh, your cost of capital goes up, maybe some investors can't own you. So. It's, it's a mixture of all sorts of things. It's quite a quite a mm. complex mixture. Let's talk transportation for a moment, because you know you've mentioned it several times, and there was a T mm. added to the acronyms and all that stuff. Oh yes, transportation is important in this game, isn't it? Because I mean, for one, we're talking about you know making s- supply chains more sustainable, but here we are introducing a whole new step. To what extent? Because in the U.S., I don't think this discussion has been so present because I guess uh, a lot of the early thing, you know, with carbon was just, you know, they were using everything on it, on the site itself, and then reinserting it into the well. Mm. But, but now with, with storage, uh, why is there the need to transport? Can they just not dig it down into the ground wherever they are? Or is that not the case? Are Mm. we talking about (laughs) a limitation? Yeah. So, I mean, effectively, so when you store CO2 permanently, it's called, it's geological storage. It's not you know, there are some big caverns around the world that that, that um, countries or industries use to store gas, for instance, or natural gas or, or hydrogen. It's not that. This is geological storage, sort of more like the reverse of oil and gas extraction. So you put it back into either back in or you put it into a reservoir at what's called geological depth, which is, you know, two, three, four kilometers underground. So these, these go into rock formations that are a long, long way below the surface. Um, the... The two main areas or two main types, one is a disused or let's say a, what's called a depleted, so a, a used uh, oil and gas field. So one that's well, perhaps you've been producing gas for 30, 40 years and it's largely done. The pressure is very low now, but there's space. So that, that's one to reuse. The other one is uh, what's called an aquifer. Or it's, sa- it's basically a porous rock. It's sandstone where you would uh, effectively uh, displace um, uh, water from uh, from this large uh, rock structure. Those are much larger. And I think if you look at the potential in Europe, for instance, in the, the North Sea is a very um, prolific area to try and store CO2. And UK, Danish, and Norwegian North Sea, there's a lot of space there. And most of it, or the majority at least, are, are these aquifers, sandstone, and also, and, but there also are some disused oil and gas wells. If you ask, when you get to the technical end, if you ask a, a, a geoscientist or a geologist, they tend to think, well, Actually, the pressure and behavior of an old reservoir is often a bit, well, like us, tired and old when we, when we get a bit used, used up and burnt out. So those are maybe sometimes less predictable and also maybe less suitable, but they're an easy target for the first wave of, of doing storage. Um, the, the bigger ones, the big potential um, are, these, uh, are these aquifers. And there's a lot of space. I mean, there's not, you know, you could put all of European emissions into the, you know, across the North Sea um, for for probably a century or so. There's a lot of space there. And the same in the US. The US has got a lot of 
storage space. Interesting. Yeah. However, there's a whole new industry that needs to grow up yes. around shipping then. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, this is it. So, so the question is, um, so what, so how is this all growing up? Um, how is it, how is the whole model maturing? So Europe has gone around, and this is really a policy driven machine as well. And they've gone around building what's called industrial hubs. So they, they, they choose, you know, typically, you know, um, Europe and UK and Norway, there are a lot of sites, especially in Europe and the UK, where you have a big river mouth and you have a lot of industry around it where you've used seaborne transport for all sorts of things, but you have perhaps some uh, chemicals, refining, you have power generation, cement, and of course, you know, marine transport is very prevalent in those industries. So you have a big industry growing up, multi-industries around a, a big coastal coastal area. So that's what, that's, well, that's your sort of hub target because that's you said, well, okay, this area's got 10 million tons of, uh, of CO2 per year that we can look to to try and capture. Um, gives the government a big target. You, you, you're, not, you're not then chasing individual plants scattered over a big area. You can you can have a policy that covers a, a whole region, and it can hopefully get you a long way towards achieving a big target. So that's one thing. So you can then that whole region can share infrastructure, build their own pipelines, and then store it in the in the in the offshore sea somewhere. Then the question is, well, how do you scale it up to anything anyone who's not near that? Because you you know the UK there are two. Big industrial clusters, one in northeast and one in the northwest. There's there are a couple in uh, two or three in, in in northern Europe that are in a good good area of development right now, Denmark and Netherlands and so on. And there are, there's one in Norway, Northern Lights, part of the Longship project. And there'll be more coming. But to your point, the, the not every emitter is going to have an industrial cluster on their doorstep. There's a lot. I mean, we we have a lot of incoming requests from for studies and so on, um, engineering work for plants that are. To be blunt, in the wrong place. They're in southern Europe somewhere, in Italy or Greece, and there's not an there's not an obvious route, at least with any level of advanced development, just to, to take your CO two and store it somewhere. So the only route is to put it in a ship and take it up to Norway or to the UK, um, and that I think is a classic known unknown because it's a uh, those ships don't really exist yet. Now the, the people have moved CO two um, by ship for some time, but but not at a big scale. So the But over time I'm just thinking about the future outlook of man, the manufacturing industry here or the industrial yeah. sector would it not make sense to at least build new factories and facilities closer to the storage point um in due course I think you're going to see this I mean so the simple answer is yes and the question is where do you see it because uh, in North America, or US in particular, well, North America, I suppose, in both, there's a lot of space, a lot more space than there is in Europe. Um, and there's also a lot more storage opportunity onshore. And onshore is always easier and, and cheaper. As soon as you get it wet, especially with seawater, things go to three or four times the price. So uh, going onshore is, is much, much easier. Also, there's a lot of what's called quite um, diverse storage in the US. It's, it's spread out over, over many different areas. So there'll probably be a lot of projects that uh, will have, um, let's say, some emitters, some cement plants or power generation or something. There'll be a, a reasonable number within a certain radius, within a certain area, and they'll have storage perhaps 10, 15, 20 miles away. They won't have to go and go and uh, build a long pipeline to the coast, to a terminal, and then get a ship to take it somewhere else. That, that'll be, that won't be needed. So I think the transport routes for a lot of the work in the US could well, and North America in general, could well be quite... Um, uh, a bit easier than than that in Europe, but effectively, to your point, you know, when you're building your next plant, there's no question uh, if you're a CFO of a, of a cement company and you want to look for siting your next uh, facility, you know, what key questions are there? 
Energy cost, well, how does Europe compare with the US? Uh, storage, CO2, all those, all those issues, yeah, they're going to get important. And it could well be that you think either a different part of Europe or, uh, or maybe even a different part of the world is a, is a better destination in the future. I mean, one, one phrase we hear quite a bit is, um, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, competitive decarbonization. In other words, you know, you know you, the next one you build has to be, has to be largely CO2-free. You know what we have to do, so where are you going to put it? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think I'm sure it will be it will be in people's planning decisions in the future, definitely. Well, well, another question, uh, one of the last questions, uh, you know, putting your analyst hat on again, you know, what will the size of the CO2 market be, um, you know, globally or, or in these various regional markets over the next decade? I mean, is there, is this a billion dollar, tens of billion dollar market or, or is yeah, it? Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, even bigger than that, I think. Um, I think the, the question is not so much uh, if, but when, um, and Right now, you know, we're in the middle of a policy storm in, in Europe in particular, uh, but in the in the world in general, um, which means that some projects might not appear in the next six, 12 months that you may have thought would appear uh, about a year ago, uh, but they'll come. I think that we have very good confidence that this industry will come. Um, and, you know, almost the, the longer we have to wait, the more time we have to reduce cost and to redesign things and make things cheaper. So I think it'll it'll only accelerate it uh, in, the, in the long term. To your point about the size of market, I mean, I think... Um, the the IEA uh, long term projections see sort of a you know seven or eight billion tons of CO two per year um, in a, in a few decades time as a sort of the size of the actual capture. But if you look at look at Europe, I mean that's maybe an easier and more more um, let's say not near term but medium term view. You know all of Europe is roughly what one and a half billion tons of CO two something like that. And if you look at the ones right now who are the actual emitters, you know the cement plants and the power generation plants and so on, who are near some of these industrial hubs. So in other words, all things being equal, who could actually link up with a reasonable cost environment with these big hubs and then then transport CO2? Um, it's about 250 million. So it's what, one-fifth or one-sixth of the potential market is what you could actually do right now. So there's still a lot to go. But on a, on a medium-term view, so let's say, I don't know, five, six, seven-year view, uh, you've got 250 million tons that you can address right now with the industrial hubs we're looking at in Europe. The question then becomes, where do you put it all? Back to your question about storage and uh, transport. And that is, I mean, this is, this is one of the most, I would say, in our, at least in our industry, one of the widest um, held opinions is that storage needs to grow pretty fast. Because if you look at the actual storage plans that are being currently under development, and there are lots of new ones coming. So it's not, you know, it's not like this is, I'm the first guy saying this, but uh, if you look at how much storage is currently under development, it's, it's less than 100 million. So you're quite a way short of that 250 million for what you can do in Europe right now. Um, so that's that's one thing. The U.S. side is bigger. I mean, I know things are always bigger in, the, in America, but <laughs> but it's true. And the, the the American footprint is about five billion tons of CO two per year, and about half of that is um, energy and in industry. So the stuff that we would tend to look at as an industrial type of uh, you know target to capture CO two. So you've got two and a half billion tons. Then some of that's going to be in the wrong place. So. You know, even if it's half of that, you've still got probably a market that um, is going to be several times the size of Europe. So, yeah, and that's that's all. I think you're going to see a lot of this come to market in the next uh, six, seven, eight years. So certainly the second half of this decade is going to get increasingly busy. Hmm. 
Well, increasingly busy. It sounds like you're you're busy already. It's a it's a complicated, interesting, and potentially pivotal for the planet. These are very very important issues. I, I thank you so much for uh, illuminating me on some of the complexities around it. And uh, I don't think the discussion ends here, right? So absolutely not. Lots to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it here, uh, but um, we shall uh, you know return to this. And thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurize podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.